Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades Podcast, episode 249. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And I hope you've got a cold one with you. It's quarantine, right? So, are we trying not to drink during the day? Yes? No? Who knows? Whatever the case, wherever you are, hopefully you're not in the car, but crack a cold one because we've got a good one for you today. It's Jonathan Shikes. He is freelance beer writer for Westward and also author of a new book, Denver Beer, A History of Mile High Brewing. Now, this one is exciting for me because I got into craft beer maybe, what was this, like a decade ago? I remember my Gateway IPA. I was in Wichita, Kansas, of all things, and I developed a taste for single-wide IPA made by Boulevard Brewing. Before that, not into IPAs at all. After that, I'm like, yes, okay, I want all the hops. Give me the hops. Before that... I learned to love craft beer up in Fort Collins, thanks to New Belgium and Odell's. And so once I get into something, I want to really get into it. I want to learn about it. I want to immerse myself inside whatever it is that I am into. And so beer became that thing. And we are blessed with great beer writers here in Denver. I've had Ed Sealover on the show. He writes for Denver Business Journal. And he's someone that I inexplicably run into at every festival I ever go to. And the other one is Jonathan Shikes, who I've probably been reading even longer than Sealover. And like I said, he writes for Westward. And his stuff is just so good and so well-researched and so well-written. I love it when new articles by him pop up because I know they're going to have depth. They're going to have nuance. They're going to have insight. And it's just a joy to get to live in a city with beer writers like that. His new book, Denver Beer, A History of Mile High Brewing, was released on March 2nd. I've got links to all the places you can find it in the companion blog piece, in the show notes, if you're listening to us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on iHeartRadio, or any of a billion other podcatchers that I can't be bothered to plug here. But what matters is in the show notes, you'll be able to find links to where you can find Jonathan's book. And I've got to tell you how supremely weird it is to have another guest named Jonathan. I know I almost never go by Jonathan anymore in my life. If you talk to my parents, that's all they refer to me as, which is their right, their prerogative. They named me that. But I tell him at the end of this episode, at some point, everyone just started shortening it to John for me, and I couldn't fight City Hall anymore. I'm just like, fine, you know what? I'm John now, but no H. So let's see if I can make this more annoying for myself for the rest of my life. And, spoiler alert, I've succeeded. So, that aside, this is a great chat. We talk all things beer. We talk about his book. We talk about his writing career. We talk about some of the things that annoy us both about craft beer culture. There are a few things out there, but that's sort of a subset of the fact that there are annoying people out there in general. Annoying people in the world, there's probably going to be some annoying folks in the craft beer world. We talk about gateway beers. I mentioned a few of mine here. He tells me about his. All in all, this is kind of exactly what I hoped it would be. A great chat with a cool dude about one of my favorite subjects. What else can you ask for, especially during quarantine? I've been on a particular hot streak here, at least for me personally, where I've gotten to talk about punk rock, gotten to talk about pro wrestling, and what's missing? A beer episode. So here it is right now with Jonathan Shikes. He is author of Denver Beer, A History of Mile High Brewing. He's also a freelance writer for Westward, writing about beer. He's also a super nice dude, so if you happen to be at your favorite brewery and you see him there, Go up and say hi. I'm sure he'll be happy to hear from you. But you're going to hear from him right now on episode 249 of the John of All Trades podcast with Jonathan Shikes, and his episode starts right now.
Well, which fridge? I've got. Uh, <laughs> okay, that tells me a little what I need to know. <laughs> uh, let's let's start. I don't know. Pick a fridge. What's in there? Uh, well, so the main fridge uh, has um, an unfortunate amount of beer, uh, which should be in my other two fridges, which are all full of beer, but I can't fit all the beer in those fridges. So my kids make fun of me because I take up all their, their space for food with um, with beer. Okay, so in, in the beer fridges, what, what are the staples in Jonathan Shikes's house? Like, if, if I were to go over to your house and, you'd, and I'd find beer, what, what would typically be in there? What's something you buy regularly? There would probably always be some uh, some stuff from Weldworks. Uh, that's a big big favorite of uh, my wife and, and myself. You know, I, I almost always have some sort of Oscar Blues in there. I actually have a lot of Melvin. Oh, there you go. Yep, <laughs> nice. That's my that's my favorite beer. I yeah. I just I for whatever reason I can go to that again and again and again. It's Dale's, and yep. there's something about it that just draws me in. And I you'll almost always find Dale's in my house. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of Melvin brewing from Wyoming, uh-huh. um, but a lot of it is stuff that rotates through. I mean, I I like to try all the different releases from all the different breweries, so it's re- it really varies um, what, what I have in there. Yeah. So this is Jonathan Shikes, beer writer here in Denver, freelance at the Westward, and yep. author of a new book. Uh, it is called Denver Beer, A History of Mile High Brewing. And, man, it's exciting to get to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. I was thinking, because I've had Sea Lover on this show before, and between yeah. you and Ed Sea Lover, man, like we have some fantastic beer writing here in the state. I always look forward to your stuff, follow you. Like We're friends on Facebook. And anytime you come up with something, uh, I'm thrilled with what comes out. So between you and Sea Lover, I feel like we're really, really well covered. How did you get into this, and how long have you been at it? So I uh, started writing. I started writing about beer for Westward in about 2007, 2008 ish. I had come back to. Col- I'm from Colorado, from Denver originally, and I had moved to California for about five years and came back in 2007 and I got a job as the managing editor at Westward. And at the time we were all trying to find ways to interact online uh, with the website. We were, we had started some blogs and everyone who was there was supposed to try and come up with something else that they could write about, have some fun with. And I felt like there really wasn't a lot of beer coverage and Colorado was such a huge beer place that it would be fun. And I had always been interested in craft beer. I've been a home brewer. I've written, business stories in the past about breweries it was just something that was naturally extremely interesting to me and, and i felt undercovered so i started writing about beer right around then and you know little did i know that it would just sort of explode over, over the next uh, 10 15 years so that's um, that's how i started writing about it and i've been doing it ever since wow that's really cool um i've tried my hand at home brewing i am terrible at it just yeah. lousy and i think part of the problem is i don't I don't have the proper sterilization. The the things that I'm using are just they're they're not good. So my home brow yeah. always turned out awful. How are you as a home brewer? Um, you know, so I haven't I haven't done it a whole lot um, recently. My main home brewing days were when I was actually a a teenager, um, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, <laughs> and uh, nice. and into my early twenties. Yeah. So I did try it again about ten years ago, and it just it just wasn't worth it. You know, I. I yeah, the beer came out all right, but there were so many better beers that I could buy. 
So and it takes a lot of it takes a lot of patience to yeah. clean everything and and um, when you're doing it in your house and, and you want to have someone to do it with too. It's it's kind of hard to do it by yourself unless you've got a real real nice set, uh, setup. Absolutely. And it's funny because we met the first time when I was doing publicity for the old 121 brew house rollout. And yep. you came and you were goodly enough to interview Brett and Jason and Carla and the folks over there. The reason I bring that up is because they offered me the opportunity to brew a beer with them. And so I go, great, like fantastic. And Brett said, because I was brewing with Brett, he goes, this was a really enjoyable brew day. So a lot of times I'm in here by myself and we're in there and it's just a lot of like labor and a lot of like cleaning and a lot of disinfecting and people yes. picture, you know, brewing, they're picturing, you know, like Jim Cook in some Sam Adams commercial, you know, up on the brew deck dumping in hops or something. That's like 2% of it, if that. Yep. And so what we brewed, what I really wanted was a hoppy pills with Amarillo hops. You'll always find hoppy pills in my fridge. So whether that's howdy or mama's or Pivo or something, Though that's my beer. And so we made it. I couldn't have been more thrilled with the way it turned out. You recently got to brew a beer with uh, with some friends in the industry, didn't you? I, well, I brewed a beer over at uh, Strangecraft for right. – um, it was going to be a, uh, a, a beer to celebrate the book and also to celebrate uh, Strange's. This is their 10th tenth, uh, their tenth anniversary this year. It's actually next month. So that was what that beer was, yeah. And uh, what what kind of beer was it? So I looked through, I thought it would be fun since Tim Myers, who is the owner of Strange, was, is, came out of the homebrewing scene and was such a, has always really pushed the creativity that comes with homebrewing. So I thought it would be fun to get one of the recipes from Charlie Batesian's, uh Joy, uh, Complete Joy of Homebrewing nice. and kind of dial it up, maybe put a little twist on it because Strange likes to do, you know, their strange twists on beers. <laughs> The, the name is apropos um, and, there, yes. Yeah, and I read that book, and I had that book, and there's a there's a chapter in my book on Charlie, and there's a chapter on Tim, and I just thought it'd be fun to to do that. So we did a, we did a wheat beer, we did a vice beer, and um, then he added some honey to it and some Belgian yeast, and it came out really nicely. I don't know if they still have it around, but by the time it came out, we were all on lockdown. Yeah, what was the ABV on that? Because that seems like it's uh, it's got the potential to be fairly high. No, he kept, he wanted to keep it down, so I think it ended up. Uh, I want to say it ended up around six and a half. Maybe, oh, not bad. Okay, or maybe even lower. I mean, when you when you say Belgian yeast and honey, you know, I'm thinking lots of sugars in there, and you know, yeah. the the potential for high ABV. I know with my hoppy pills, I think that was four point five. So just wanted something that was super crushable, which was really really cool. Yeah, I'm curious. I mean, we're all in lockdown here, and as you're kind of writing about beer. How has your experience writing about it now changed versus before we were in lockdown? How much were you out and about? And how has that changed the way that you are getting beer, the way that you're finding stories? Um, or is it all that different at all? Some parts are very different and some parts are, are very similar. I, I spend a lot of time on the phone calling people. I spend a, a lot of time online just kind of chatting people up and trying to see what's going on in, in the beer world. So that's that's pretty similar. A lot of the brewers now are, are pretty stressed out and, and some of them don't have the time because they're trying to figure out ways to, to stay in business. The thing that's changed is, yeah, the social aspect. I, I do like to go out when I can. I, I have other jobs that I do, so I can't always go out. But when I can, I try and get out as, as much as possible to, to go to the breweries, to buy their beer, to take home a crowler, to um, talk to people in person, to see what's going on. Uh, so that part obviously is, is all gone. So I, 
I miss that, that kind of face-to-face you know, interaction that I have with people, whether it's at a festival or at the, at the brewery. I desperately miss it too. And given what we're reading now about how social distancing is likely to continue, you know, I'm, I'm wondering about beer festivals and even maybe J- GABF. What does that look like this year? And does it happen? Because you can't cram that many people together in the convention center the way that you used to. They, they wouldn't I actually asked them that and they, they didn't want to really talk about it yet. So they didn't give me an answer. I think they're, which, and I don't blame them because they, no, they don't, don't know what's, what's happening. But my guess is they are working on contingency plans. I don't think that the Great American Beer Festival will happen this year. I could be wrong, but that, that is my assumption is that it, that it will not, that it will not happen. I, I, I don't see, in fact, I don't see any festivals taking place this summer or, or fall, to be honest. It's hard to picture right now, and when I start thinking about that, because I love going to beer festivals, I love going to tap rooms, and I love going to concerts, too. Those are some of my favorite things to do, and the idea that those are at least gone temporarily uh, is is really bumming me out. So, I mean, beer is kind of an escape for a lot of people, but it's it's almost like a very stark reminder – of what we're going through right now. And, and that's tough. Is that reflective of the conversations that you've had with brewers? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, most of them are just <laughs> trying to keep their heads above water right now. They all use the word pivot, you know, with, you yeah. know they're trying to change their business model uh, in order to survive for the time being to, to try and pay as many employees as they can. I don't think a lot of them have thought too far beyond the next couple of weeks. Right. Yeah. In part because, they may not be around, you know, they, they may not be able to keep the lights on a month from now if we're still in this kind of lockdown situation. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I think they're kind of taking it um, announcement to announcement, you know, when it comes to the government and, and, and what the what the health requirements are. Yeah, it's unknown. And I mean, for as robust as Colorado's craft beer scene is, I, I'm interested to see what it's going to look like a month from now, two months from now, six months from now because it is necessarily yeah. going to look very, very different. Yeah, absolutely. question I always like to put to people who work in kind of, let's call them dream jobs, right? Because a lot of people <laughs> think to themselves, I would love to get paid to write about beer, right? Yeah. And I think once you start doing something that you love, and I say this as someone who thought I wanted to be a TV reviewer, then I actually started reviewing TV and got paid for it. And started dreading it it would be sunday nights and i'm sitting down to watch hbo something that you know you normally really enjoy before you shove off to work on monday and i'm sitting there i'm like wow i have like five hours of work ahead of me now and i kind of took that for granted so i'm curious your take as a beer writer do you get burned out on beer and how do you do self-care when you do (laughs) i i do get burned out every once in a while it's become such a part of my life now that it's, it's just part of what I, you know, it's part of what I do. It's my, um, you know, my wife is, uh, loves, loves drinking beer. So it, it, it definitely works its way into your life to a, to a place where it doesn't become something you dread necessarily. It just becomes a part of what you think about all the time. And I enjoy hanging around the people in the brewing world. There's always, you know, I can't be, I'm not necessarily, I don't, pal around with a whole lot of people in the, in the brewing world, because it's a, that's just not, you know, I mean that they, they pal around with each other, but, but um, as a writer, it's, it's hard, you know, it's not, 
I'm I'm an outsider, you know, and it's, so yeah. it's it's hard for me in a lot of ways. But I do have some friends in in the beer world. When I when I get burnt out, I drink wine for nice. a few days, <laughs> uh, and then uh, then I'm good again. I was thinking about uh, the movie Almost Famous, where Lester Bangs gives some advice to to William, and he says, "Look, don't try and be these guys' friends." Because you're going to write about them, and it's your job to write about them honestly. Because you're a surrogate for people out there, and it sounds like you hold to kind of a similar axiom. You know, you're not palling around with brewers a ton, because I, I wouldn't say um, anything that you've written has ever been unfair. But there are going to be times where they may not be super uh, on board with your appraisal of their work. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair. They, they may not like the way something was characterized. Um, I mean, I honestly care about. You know the people in this in this in this world uh, in the beer world, and when I ask them how they're doing, you know, I, I I do I you know I honestly care about you know I've known some of them for so long now, and so I you know I do really care about them. But yeah, it is hard. You have to maintain a a bit of a professional distance, I think, in order to uh, be able to be as balanced as you can. And and beer writing is different than politics or, or any other subject really because. It's beer, you know, and it's fun, but uh, but I do I do try and maintain you know that, that professional distance. Yeah, uh, well, a lot of distancing going on right now, so it's much easier. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, forgive that tortured kind of pun. Let's talk a little bit about the book. So, Denver beer, give us the synopsis for it. Like, let's let's all get on the same page, and uh, you know, give us give us the elevator pitch for it. Sure. Yeah. So uh, the book is about. It goes all the way back to 1858 or 1859, which is when the first beer was brewed in Denver by uh, uh, after the gold rush, which was the year before, and and when Denver was actually founded, 1858. And then there's a there's a few chapters at the beginning. They talk about the the old breweries, the German, Polish, uh, Austrian immigrants who you know who came here and set up uh, the breweries. Uh, and then it, it continues on through as that scene sort of matured. And then we got all the way through till there were some real alcohol problems in the late 1800s, early 1900s, which, uh, led in part to prohibition. I go through prohibition and the aftermath. And then within the seventies was the craft beer started. That's what the majority of the book is on. And so my idea was to, to really pick some milestones from those years and to talk about to do a chapter on each milestone, something that I felt really changed the changed the industry in the mainly in the Denver area. So that's that, that's what the remaining chapters are about. So when you talk about prohibition, do you talk about the the founding of something like Coors Tech? You know, Coors pivoting into things like ceramics and non alcoholic offerings, and you know, things like that. Yeah, I talked a little bit about it. They they made uh, malted milk for. Huh. Um, babies <laughs> and for uh and for candy they did uh the porcelain and um what was their other big business they had a couple of other businesses that they did for a while to try and and that's why they were able to come back they also knew the prohibition was coming because um adolf course was on the it was a national group that tracked the folks who were in favor of prohibition and so they, they kind of understood that this was coming. They saw state by state, city by city, as places went dry before national prohibition, that this was on its way. So I think they were able to diversify early. Yeah. They, well, I mean, preparation is the key for any business. 
I brought that up because I actually grew up in Golden and I was friends with the Coors family when I was a kid. Oh, okay. Um, and so I've been to their house many, many times. Uh, their youngest son, David, uh, is my same age. And I okay. think, what is his role there now? I can't even remember. The last I heard, David Coors was running the craft division. Oh, like AC Golden? Yeah, but they also wanted him to push out into some of the non-beer beverages. So okay. he was doing, yeah, so AC Golden, which, you know, when they had the big change and they, they, they dumped all the Denver offices, the, they folded some of the different pieces together. So the last I heard, he was he was going to be in charge of that. I, I don't know if that hmm. is what happened or not, but that's, that's the last I heard. <clears throat> I mean, Coors kind of in the history of Colorado beer, at least my understanding of it, plays kind of an outsized role. Like it, it, I mean, it's the gorilla in the state, right? You, their their entire brand was built around Colorado for a very long time. How much of what you talk about in your book uh, talks about the Coors family? And did you have interaction with them as you were making it? Yes. So I did get to interview Pete and then uh, two of his sons, Peter and and David. Mm -hmm. I don't have a lot from our interview, but I wanted to make sure that I was able to talk to them and get their take on things. So I, I do have some of that in there. The The chapter on the Coors family is, is an outsized chapter, just like uh, they, you mentioned their role in Colorado is, is outsized. Sure. And I have a, a whole separate chapter on Blue Moon. Oh, yeah. But Coors is mentioned throughout the book. It's mentioned in the early chapters. It's mentioned later. The family and, and what they did, just the Coors mystique is, is part of why some people think that Colorado became such a, a center for brewing because they – created this image of Colorado as being a special place for beer. And whether it was, you know, their goal was Coors beer, but people continue to think Colorado has this, this is a special place for beer. And it is, but that, that mindset is, is nationwide now. So um, wow. you know, what they did, I think in, in some ways planted those seeds. So my friend, uh, I, I think, you know, him. you know, Josh Klaus or Josh McKlaus now. Uh-huh. He wrote uh, an article, I think, for Denver Off the Wagon, talking about how important Blue Moon is in terms of gateways to craft beer. That's a lot of people's kind of first craft beer. And I'm pivoting this to uh, a question for you because I remember you wrote an article, and it was something like the 25 most important craft beers yeah. in Colorado. And Blue Moon was certainly in there. Yep. Uh, can you talk about a little bit gateways to craft beer? To craft beer, I, I'm trying to figure out exactly how I want to frame this question because I went to college in Fort Collins, where every night you could get Fat Tire, or you know Sunshine Wheat, or Easy Street Wheat, or um, 90 Shilling for a dollar, right? It would be on special somewhere uh, every night. When you talk to people, what what are some other gateways to craft beer that that you've found? Yeah, well, Blue Moon and, and Fat Tire are, you know, the, the ones that people talk about the most often. But, you know, I think these days, depending on where people's, uh, you know, where their palates kind of lie, I, I think they get into, um, I mean, the, the big breweries definitely have, you know, the, the biggest presence. Sorry, the, the biggest, the, the big craft breweries have the biggest presence. So, you know, your New Belgium and Odell and, and Left Hand, uh, Oscar Blues, those guys, I think Dale's Pale Ale, I don't want to say it's a gateway because it's a pretty heavy hitting beer, but <laughs> I think it's it's everywhere and I think a lot of people drink it and you can get, you know, you get 12 packs of it. A lot of the Odell beers, I think, 90 Shilling, like you, I think you mentioned 90 Shilling, but yeah. Five Barrel Pale Ale, just their straight IPA. Those are all really balanced beers. They're not necessarily over the top anymore. Right. Uh, 
So I think I think some of those beers are are uh, pretty. You know, these days anyway, those are some gateway beers. Uh, people coming from outside of Colorado, uh, you know, they talk, they all have their their bells or victory oh, sure, or yeah. some of the the big craft breweries from from elsewhere. So I think that's how people you know people started off. Someone gets a keg of of one of their you know big basic most famous beers and and it goes from there. I think uh, one of the beers that's underrated here is and it's not i mean it's not an american beer at all but it's guinness because there's a beer writer that i liked who used to write for deadspin and he said guinness for a lot of people is going to be the best beer they drink all year and it'll be on saint patrick's day you know they'll have a guinness so guinness is kind of important in opening up other flavor profiles because in the 80s and i'm curious how much you talk about this in the book but like in the 80s it was dominated by fizzy yellow beer, right? A lot of lagers, a lot of pilsners, and a lot of like Euro stuff. My dad still, um, you go over to his house and he's got, you know, Stella or Bex or St. Polly Girl or something in there. And that was the dominant flavor profile for a long time. How much of that uh, plays into your book? You know, I, I don't, in the book, I don't talk a whole lot about that aspect of it, um, you know, mainly because after prohibition, there was sort of a race to, to the lowest common denominator when it came to flavor. Before there had been there had been styles. The German brewers who came here they were they made a Bach, they made a Pilsner, they made a Hellas. They they had styles. And afterwards, those breweries that started up again, they just they brought everything together, took the flavor out, made them light, made them the most easiest drinking thing that they could. And uh, until you know, until we had a, a bunch of beers that all tasted the same in, in the seventies. In the eighties, when I was uh, growing, when I was you know a teenager here in Denver, the beers, any beer that tasted, yeah, Guinness was one of my gateway beers. Actually, in a bottle, not not on draft. Yeah, um, because I wasn't old enough to to. Well, I can't remember if they had a three two version of it actually, but um, did they still have uh, the widget in it? Beer, I don't even remember. If, I I don't even remember if they had the widget. But like Moosehead and Heineken, I mean, those were fancy beers. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Man, Moosehead. You know, Boulder Beer was the first craft brewery in Colorado, and it, it's and it just just you know kind of went out of business here recently. But yeah, they they, they were a real gateway for a, for a lot of people, and they opened people's up, started opening people's eyes up in the in the eighties. Yeah, uh, you got to give it up for Boulder Beer, uh, especially. I mean, I still love Shake uh, Chocolate Porter. I mean. That that's a tasty, tasty beer, and I I think when you yeah. put that in front of someone who has the idea of what they think beer is, they drink that, they go, "Wow, this is way different than I thought," and yeah. so that's super exciting when that happens for someone. What were what were some of your other gateway beers? You mentioned uh, Guinness, which I, again is a good one. I think about what something like Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, what like how much that must have blown people's minds when that was released, and when was that? That was like eighty three or something, wasn't it? Somewhere, yeah, I can't remember the year, but somewhere around there, yeah. But you said you were looking for anything that was different, and you mentioned Boulder Beer. What what were some of the other things that were out there at the time that that helped you, you know, pivot to craft beer? And as you're searching for new flavors, oh gosh, I guess it's going to be in the early '90s. Uh, Old Chicago would always have uh, a lot of different beers. There were and liquor stores. So I lived in Longmont for for three years in the mid '90s, and Left Hand Brewing was had started there in, in 94 and they were already bottling in, in big bottles, bomber bottles. I think they might've had six packs. I can't remember, but I really started buying a lot of left hand. And I also, I also bought the, uh, 
uh, beers from Oasis Brewing in Boulder. They were a big 90s brewery. Um, I remember they that, have actually. a reincarnated version of themselves now in Highland Square on 32nd and uh, ten, uh, Lowell. Um, I would go wherever I could get something different. I mean, the, I went to the Wincoop. I went to Breckenridge. I drank a lot of Tommy Knocker. Uh, oh, sure, yeah. Around. So they were they had Browns. You know, these were just <laughs> beers. You know, the people would sort of make fun of today, but they had. Tommy Knocker had a nut brown and Oasis had a brown and they were just really good and different. And, and then, you know, they had pale ales that were, that were hoppy. So those were my, those were a lot of my, those were my gateway breweries and gateway beers for me. Yeah. It's funny. I remember, I don't remember who I was talking to about this, but they said, when you get into craft beer, you kind of follow a predictable arc, right? You go from like wheats and ambers and things like that, that are a little bit, you know, brown ales, that kind of thing. Um, then you go to like hot bombs. You're, you're looking for IPAs and getting the most like mouthful of dandelions that you possibly can. Then it's, you know, barrel aged stuff and then it sours. And then eventually you come back around to it where you're like, I could really just go for someone making a super great Pilsner or lager, <laughs> which <laughs> I always thought was funny. And then every year right around GABF, everyone floods into town and where do they go? They go to like Beerstadt Lager House. To get right. to get a great slow pour pilsner, it's it's funny to watch. Yeah, the brewers themselves—that that's for sure what they do, uh, and lots of drinkers too. But you know, IPAs, double IPAs, those are still the beers that that oh, yeah. make up the majority of the market, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is once you yeah you you go in a full circle. Barrelage beers to me tasted like cough medicine the first time I tried them, <laughs> and now now I love them. I mean, that's why I have tons of them in my fridge. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you go through a whole, uh, it's a journey. It's such a journey. <laughs> it is. It's a journey. I'm curious about this because I interviewed the owners of a liquor store. Uh, I think this was a couple of years ago at this point. But they said one of the challenges for them is craft beer drinkers are very fickle, and they're always looking for the next new thing. And so yeah. it makes ordering for them very, very challenging, and especially with something like pumpkin beers. Because you've really got to thread the needle on that. You've got to order the exact correct amount because as soon as people are done with them, they're done with them and then you're stuck. What's your take on the fickle nature of craft beer uh, fans? And when I read about something like Flagship February, you know, save the flagships, you know, things like Anchor Steam or uh, Sierra Nevada or even, you know, something like Dale's or Shake, for God's sakes, from Boulder Beer Company. What's your take on the fickle nature of craft beer fandom? It's it's definitely a phenomenon that's uh, from the last about eight or so years that has just sort of increased and increased and and that is what is happening right now. People want people want what's new. They want to try something different. I think that those flagship beers, for the most part, are doing fine. They're not growing, um, and so that makes the brewery sad. But um, <laughs> they sell plenty of. I mean. Sam Adams is selling plenty of Sam Adams. You right. know, there's Dale's Pale Ale is in every supermarket. So those beers are doing fine. They're just not growing the way that the brewers would like them to. Uh, the fickle nature, it can get old sometimes, always trying to have whatever the new thing is, especially if the new thing is just a revamped version of what you had last week and right. the week before. So for a lot of people, I think they just step they step outside of that and they just stick with what, what it is that they like. I like I like to try new things every once in a while. You find something that tastes totally different. It lights you up for a little bit, and it's you know it's a lot of fun. Um, but for the most part, yeah, sometimes it can get tiring trying continually trying new beers. 
over and over, especially if you end up not liking them that much. <laughs> right. It's hard for me, and I, I've found this with people who are really into uh, cannabis, going yep. to dispensaries and never being able to find like the same thing twice. Right? right. And so you go to a brewery, you're like, man, I had that, that one that was just exceptional. And I actually, I was at Choluna one time and they have this Tamarindo Goza that I absolutely adore. And it's like my favorite beer. He goes, yeah, we made that one seasonal and now it's just rotating. And I go, man, like sometimes I just want to go to my favorite place and have a beer that I had once and really, really liked. So I, <clears throat> I think it can be a tough nut to crack. Yeah. You know, um, it's funny, Denver Beer Company, when they started out in 20, gosh, 2011 or 2012, they wanted to make beers that changed with the season. They, they wanted to never make the same beer twice. They wanted to be like a restaurant that just oh, like a farm to table kind of deal menu. Yeah. And is always changing its dish, dish. You know, it's always changing its dishes, small dishes about whatever's in season and whatever kind of gets the chefs, uh, gets the chef excited that week. So that was their original plan. And they've always embraced that promiscuous. They always call it <laughs> promiscuous nature of, of beer drinkers. And, you know, they were right on trend without knowing it then because that's exactly what happened. And every beer company actually has a bunch of year-round <laughs> beers now that they <laughs> do, which is, you know, which is kind of funny. But I think they – I think you have to have a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, and they've, they've certainly got their, their year-rounders. I remember uh, – I think they were trying to make this one of their flagships, but it was called Sun Drenched. And yeah. it was like a hoppy wheat. And that's one style that you don't see a ton of anymore no. are, are there any styles that you wish like people made more of that that were more available hoppy wheat is certainly one for me even just straight up wheats like sometimes you ever have a wheat beer with breakfast like if you're having a brunch or something <laughs> you, you get a, you get a wheat beer you add a little orange juice or a little lemonade to it man it's it's beautiful breckenridge used to do that all the time with their uh with their wheat beer they would they would serve it as a beer moses with a, yeah. with a little orange juice yeah i love it when it's a shandy yeah yeah you know, the, the styles that I – sometimes I wish there were more of. There's certain Belgian – I drink a lot of sort of big beers. Um, I like real hoppy stuff, but I also like uh, big kind of sweet stuff. And, mm. and so I like um, uh, triples and quads and, and uh, Belgian strongs. There there are those out there, but they're not a – it's not very consistent. And the other style I that I like are the big German styles, Doppelbachs and Dunkels. Mm. Uh, some of the bigger, sweeter versions of, of those German. Some of them are lagers and, and some of them are, are ales. I think there's even some some hybrids. I think alt beers are hybrids. But I, I do like the, the on the sweeter side of, of those, and, and I kind of wish there was a there were some more of those, those around. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And similar, like related, but a little bit different. Um, I love when Renegade did their Imperial Pilsner, which I thought was really, really cool. Um, that was fun. And then up in Portland, Hair of the Dog Brewing, I think one, the, one of their flagships is like, it's like an Imperial Lager or something. Yeah. And that's, that's a really cool style. I want to see someone in Denver do a really cool ice bock. Yeah. Uh, an ice bock would be cool. I think Chaluna had an ice bock last year. I uh, think I had it. It was a big one. And someone where I just had an ice bock somewhere else too. And I can't remember where it was but yeah those those imperial pilsners it's kind of funny because those are supposed to be a lower abv beer but, right and then ramp it up but i do like those i've uh odell does a good one too yeah yeah most definitely is there anything about craft beer culture that particularly annoys you because i i have one i have an answer for myself but i'm not going to put words in your mouth are there trends are there types of folks 
are there just elements of this culture that that annoy you that kind of grind your gears so to speak yeah i mean i think but i think that comes more from there's just a lot there's people who annoy me <laughs> sure and i think you know i can you know it's it's kind of like you know people complain about kids in breweries and kids in breweries don't bother me a because i've had kids and uh i don't know you you get past it a little bit but also because it's the it's it's the parents, right? Oh yeah, the parents are the ones. If they don't control their kids, you, if you take your kids to a brewery, you you got to be prepared to leave. Oh yeah, or you have to be there with your significant other, and one of you's got to take the kids out if they're going to be obnoxious. And, and the same with a dog. If your dog won't stop barking in a brewery or messing with people or messing with other dogs, you got to get out of there. You got to be ready. You got to be ready to go if, if that's if that's what you're going to do. And, and the people who don't are 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 annoying. And so annoying people are exist everywhere. Um, yeah. So they, you know, there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of enormous amount of negativity that that is out there. And people who are in beer just to resell it. People who are in beer just to just to show it off online. People who say absolutely obnoxious things online and Facebook and comments. That that stuff. Uh, it, it's one thing to to give an honest assessment of, of a beer or a brewery or something else. It's another to just go on there and troll. So that's, I'm not a big fan of that. And there's a lot in beer. No. And that's why when I talk to a lot of brewers, they'll be like, this is, this is why we're annoyed by untapped because there are people on there. It's like, I don't give anything above two and a half stars. It's like, well, why are you even on there? Like, what, yeah. what are you proving by doing that? So a couple of reactions. One is that, yeah, I hate when I end up parenting someone else's kids at a brewery. It's like, come on, like you <laughs> take care of your kids, like be, yeah. be a parent. I don't think there's anyone more annoyed by bad parents and breweries than other parents. So I agree with you on that. And then secondly, I get annoyed by the trophy hunters. So, you know, the ones, like you said, just buying beer to show it off or buying beer to resell it. Like, why are we even here? This is beer. Drink it. Enjoy it. This is not a contest. And so that that really bugs me too. Yeah, it can definitely be obnoxious. Um, I I post a lot of things on social media just because I have this job, and so I like to say what I'm drinking. I like to showcase places that I went. I I like to get names of breweries out there and just generally create uh, a a bit of a, a bit of a scene, you know, because I have a I have an opportunity because of the job that I have to do that, to know a lot about these different breweries. But I get called out every once in a while for, you know, showing off or for, you know, doing something along those lines, which is, which is not what I'm necessarily trying to do, but there, there is definitely a lot of, uh, a lot of that kind of the, that sort of showing off, uh, showing off culture. You're like, well, dude, I, I'm, I'm a beer writer. I, it's my job to kind of talk about these places and I'm not, not doing it for my own self gratification here. I'm doing it because it's part of what I'm trying to create here. So yeah, I'm I'm 100 percent with you. Right. I know. Uh, I know you've got uh, you've got some other stuff going on. So I think we should wrap up. Here's the place in the show where we do plugs. Tell us where can we find you? Where can we find uh, your work in the Westward? Where can we find this book? Where is it available? Anything you want to plug? Do it now. Awesome. The book came out March 2nd, and which means that it came out right before uh, everything was shut down. So I had a whole lot of events lined up. I can't complain too much. Uh, it's a, it's hard to complain about things like that right now with all the other things that people are going through. But um, I do have uh, a lot of the books. It was it was on Amazon, and then it was off Amazon, and then it was back on. And I, I think it keeps selling out. 
and Amazon is hard to get things from now. Anyway, it's I think it's still at bookbar.com. You can find it there. It's still barnesandnoble.com. And I've also got, I am doing direct sales myself. So if people want to reach out to, to me on Colorado Beer Man, Colorado Beer Man on uh, Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, they can find me just by searching for that or by my name, Jonathan Scheiss. And uh, I'm doing doing sales that way too. So um, would love to have, uh, you know, any of those people uh, reading reading my stuff or reading the book. Well, I'll tell you this. Um, congrats on keeping your name, Jonathan. Because at some point, people just started shortening mine for me. That's how I became John. And I just couldn't fight City Hall anymore. So mine is spelled the exact same way as yours, too. So well done. Thank you. All right. Perfect. Well, Jonathan Shikes, this was an enormous pleasure. I will have links to where you can buy the book uh, on the companion blog piece. That's johnofalltrades.us. It's also in the show notes. If you're listening to us on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartMedia, or any of a billion other podcatchers, it's all there. Dude, this was a thrill. I can't wait until we're all in real life again, and let's uh, let's get a beer together sometime. Yeah, that would be awesome. All Absolutely. right. Uh, continue success to you, my man. Thank you. And that'll do it for episode 249 of the John of All Trades podcast with Jonathan Shikes, writer at Denver Westward, also author of the new book, Denver Beer, A History of Mile High Brewing. You can pick that up at any of the links you find on the companion blog piece, johnofalltrades.us, or in the show notes if you're listening to us on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or any of a billion other podcatchers out there. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Here are the four pillars training, content, engagement, and podcasting. Basically, if you have an organization and you need to communicate better with your stakeholders, your employees, or people who need to hear from you, hit me up. I will help you do it in a really nuanced and in-depth way. One of the best ways is podcasting. In addition to this show, I produce three others. I'm happy to produce one for you. So hit me up, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Anything you're doing online, whether you're building a campaign, building a website, social media marketing, online advertising, 4Degrees can help you do it better. It'll help you get the message right and then deploy it on the platform where the people are who need to hear it most. The number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Be sure to follow John of All Trades on social media, J-O-A-T pod is the handle across platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Episode previews go up on Monday. I've suspended the first job series for now. New episodes drop on Wednesday. Speaking of, next week, got a big episode for you. It's 250, right? Let's do something of a milestone episode with another one of my favorite people. And until I hear you again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.